Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the week seven session of the Modern South Asian Studies Seminar here at Oxford. This week, we are pleased to have here with us Professor Sarah Ansari. Many of you in this virtual audience would be, of course, deeply familiar with Professor Ansari's work, but I will insist on saying a few words by way of an introduction before I pass on the proverbial mic back to her. Uh, Professor Sarah Ansari is a historian of modern South Asia based at Royal Holloway University of London. Right from her very first book, Sufi Saints and State Power, one of the distinctive features of Professor Ansari's scholarship has been the attention that she has devoted to understanding the province of Sindh in Pakistan. In doing so, her work has brought forth not just fresh perspectives on the nature of state power and everyday politics in South Asia, but it has also served what I think is a much needed corrective and counterweight to the dominance of the Punjab region in the history of colonial and post-colonial Pakistan. Another key thematic area of Professor Ansari's work is, of course, the partition of India and Pakistan and its continuing legacy in the lives of ordinary citizens, especially women. Last year, Professor Ansari co-authored a book with Professor William Gold entitled Boundaries of Belonging, Localities, Citizenship and Rights in India and Pakistan, which really, again, explored the kinds of interactions that took place between ordinary people and the everyday state in the years immediately following independence. I believe that she is currently working on a monograph on the history of modern Pakistan. And I think it is out of this deep familiarity with the history of the region that today she will be presenting a paper titled Jekokhere Sokhai, He Who Tilts Has the Right to Eat, Development and the Politics of Agrarian Reforms in, in late 1940s and early 1950s in Sindh. Now, before I hand over to Professor Ansari, I will say that we will have time to take a few questions from the general audience. So please do use the Q&A bar, which should be right at the bottom of your screen, to send in your questions. And towards the end of the paper, we will have the chance to select a few questions and have uh, Professor Ansari respond to some of them. So uh, over to you, Professor Sarah Ansari. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amo, for that very kind introduction. I want to share my screen, so I'm going to do that now. I think, Claire, I should do that, and then um, you take it from there, as I understand it. Yeah. If somebody could tell me when when the screen is 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 shared, then I can I'll begin my talk. Sure, I, I'll, I'll let you know when I can see it on my end. Sarah, I can't see it yet. OK, hang on, let me just. Um... Okie dokie. Um... Share desktop. Hopefully it'll come soon. Yes. Yep, there that's we go. That's brilliant. OK, fine. Well, um, that's my screen shared. So great. Very nice to be speaking to people today. Um, Amog has just introduced my topic. So knowing that time is, is you know, sh relatively short, I'm going to kick straight off with my paper. And what I want to do today um, or begin my talk today by doing is quoting a, a relatively recent report. So from about 2006, um, it was produced by the World Bank and called Securing Sin's Future Prospects and Challenges. And according to this um, report, the province of Sindh, and you can see I've just kind of highlighted where it is in the world on this map. The province of Sindh had the um, narrowest distribution of land ownership in 21st century Pakistan with something like 1% of all farmers there owning 150% more land than the combined holdings 
of 62% of small farmers. So we can see the kind of extent of that um, um, inequality. Moreover, to quote the report, given the province's feudal traditions, progressive ideas and reforms have always taken more time to take root in the interior of Sindh than in most other areas of Pakistan. Sindh has the highest incidence of absolute landlord, landlessness, sorry, highest share of tenancy and lowest share of land ownership in the country. So despite the introduction over the years of reform measures that on paper at least have been supposed to address this inequality present within the Sindhi countryside, entrenched unequal relationships still operate in the province today. But discussion regarding agrarian reform, more specifically the rights of local sharecropping tenants or haris, literally the wielder of the plough, has been taking place in Sindh for a long time. It began well before independence and has continued there basically ever since. Indeed, campaigning by Sindh's Haris to improve their lot animated provincial politics in Pakistan's early years. But my paper is not just about the often overlooked struggle of Sindh's Haris to change the status quo in what was this new state of Pakistan, Sindh. It also touches on ideas about development and progress, and I put those both in sort of inverted commas, as these circulated in the province during that same period. Discussion regarding optimum ways of organising the agrarian sector in South Asia has deep historical roots, going back, at least from the perspective of the British presence there, to the time when and the manner in which the East India Company secured its revenue bases in the subcontinent. In the case of Sindh, Following its annexation by the British in the mid 19th century, the status of local Haris, these sort of landless peasants, was downgraded from that of cultivator to sharecropper. When Waderos, the title often kind of given to large or traditional headmen um, and village chieftains, were allocated property rights over land under their jurisdiction. From then on, land with Haris in effect attached became a saleable commodity. And as elsewhere in South Asia, the transfer of this property over time became a political issue, contributing to a rise in communal tensions by the early 20th century that was seen in Sindh as elsewhere, if on a relatively lesser scale. But whereas legislation in other parts of British India, or at least some of them, created some space for, for protection in favour of tenants, no such legislation was ever passed in Sindh during the colonial period. And indeed, it wasn't until the early 1970s that the first meaningful, if largely unsuccessful, attempt to challenge the tenancy status quo really took place. So this, in a nutshell, is a kind of broader context in which the Committee of Inquiry, on which my paper focuses, was set up and tasked in early 1947 with investigating possible ways of reforming tenancy arrangements in the Sindhi countryside. While its verdict, its report, published the following May, uh, that is May 1948, produced the introduction or led to the introduction of the Tenancy Act or a Tenancy Act in Sindh in 1950, its report, um, its report recommended against the abolition of the Zamindar system and the grant of full tenancy rights to Sindhi peasants um, on the grounds that the latter seldom stayed long in the same place and would be incapable on their own of weathering seasonable crop failures. It did, however, call for peasant, peasants to receive their full share of produce and better security of tenure. 
So this outcome was viewed by contemporaries as confirmation of just how powerful landowners, zamindars and waderos remained in the life and politics of the province. But the fact that the committee had been commissioned before independence, but only issued its report after the new state of Pakistan had come into existence, also perhaps offers us a possibility of reflecting on what impact you know, the changing, the broader changing political circumstances may have had on you know, such discussions and thinking. There were important connections linking post Second World War reconstruction planning and the early, in inverted commas, improvement policies that were pursued. However, we see pre-independence planning that against the backdrop of World War had tended to stress the need for greater efficiency, seemingly making way for a growing emphasis on development in this kind of recalibrated political environment that led up to and then followed independence in 1947. Not unexpectedly, development rhetoric was often closely connected with the idea of making a break with the recent colonial past. In the context of early nation building, it was going to be essential to demonstrate that the supposed progress that independence had promised and brought had actually um, come about, or that it had promised had come about. Efficiency, it could be argued, was all about making existing systems work better. Development, again, in, I'm putting all these things in inverted commas, in contrast, changed things, made places supposedly modern, and being modern, at least on paper, was what independent states needed to aim for, at least in the mid 20th century. So my paper today really sort of kicks off with me just talking a little bit about an individual agri agricultural so-called expert, um, somebody called Roger Thomas. He was knighted, so he became Sir Roger Thomas. He was a British landowner and government advisor in Sindh, who played a major role in determining agrarian policy in that province during the period that we're looking at, staying on in Pakistan after independence. It was he who chaired the committee of inquiry so hence he had you know a, an important role in determining its um i suppose its focus and its its findings i'll then touch on how far earlier planning for post second world war reconstruction underpinned and was you know largely translated into initiatives aimed at developing agricultural pro production in the province and after that i'll turn to this hari committee of inquiry its kind of controversial outcome and political responses in the period that followed with an eye to the bigger story, I suppose, of agrarian development and Hari politics in post 1947 Sindh. So turning first to um, Sir Roger Thomas, I wish I had a photograph to just to put up while I'm talking about him, but I, there's nowhere that I've been able to find a photograph of what he looks like. So you just have to imagine him um, sort of sitting there, sort of um, pulling various strings. He was the advisor to the government of Sindh in agricultural, agricultural and post-war development between 1944 and 1952. And as I said, he chaired this um, Hari Committee of Inquiry. It's kind of, I suppose, more official name was the Sindh Farm Tenancy Legislation Committee um, it, in 1947-8. This role allowed Thomas to champion his long-held personal belief in the need to restructure and hence inverted commas, improve economic relations in the Sindhi countryside. His vision of what needed to change in Sindhi agriculture to make it more productive trumped any other considerations. 
His strong faith in the positive impact of technology meant that he saw his mandate in terms of addressing weaknesses in SIN's agricultural arrangements rather than the pursuit of a root and branch land reform agenda. Thomas was a Welshman born in 1886 in Pembrokeshire. In 1913, he was appointed the Indian Agricultural Service as a deputy director of agriculture in Madras. During the First World War, thanks to the Indian government's interest in the economic potential of what would later become Iraq, then Mesopotamia, he was seconded to the government of India's foreign and political department in 1917 to serve as a cotton expert with the Mesopotamian Expeditionary Force, being given the military rank of captain. In due course, that is in 1923, he was appointed Director of Agriculture there. But in 1926, he resigned from government service and became the managing director of um, a cotton plantation company in Iraq, having decided that his future lay in, quote, entrepreneurial agriculture. By the late 1920s, he'd returned to India, this time as an independent agricultural businessman. And first he worked in the Punjab as managing director of the British Cotton Growing Association, but ultimately shifted in 1932 to the district of Mirpurkhas in Sindh, where with two Indian partners, he formed a private company, the Sindh Land Development Company, to farm lands reclaimed there as a result of the recently completed um, Lloyd Barrage or Sucker Barrage irrigation project. He remained in this role through to his death in 1960. Though undoubtedly a large zamindar himself, Thomas, to be fair, was far removed from the stereotypical image associated with this label, at least in the context of Sindh. Rather, he was a very well-informed exponent of modernising agrarian production, something in which few zamindars in Sindh were really that interested. And before 1947, he had maintained contact with like-minded organisations and individuals across and beyond the subcontinent with the aim of generating more efficient agricultural production. In late 1944, at the prompting of the then governor of Sindh, the Sindh Premier, Hidayatullah, appointed Thomas to his cabinet as Minister for Agriculture. But the appointment of an unelected European to ministerial office at precisely the time when nationalist pressure was mounting across the region was badly received. And so within a month, Hidayatullah, under pressure from Jinnah, Muslim League leader, had dropped Thomas. However, a compromise solution was quickly found. And as I said earlier, Thomas's role was converted into that of the governor, government of Sindh's advisor in agriculture and post-war development. The two aspects of his advisory role were closely intertwined, since in a highly agrarian province such as Sindh, development planning was bound to be inextricably linked with agriculture. Closely linked to his functions as agricultural advisor were a string of appointments in various other official committees, commissions of inquiry and other expert bodies, as well as the whole business of irrigation and problems of water logging and soil salinity. Another of his ambitions focused on the spreading of cooperative methods of agriculture. In his views, these offered the possibility of increasing agricultural efficiency, which in turn would raise rural living standards. And alongside all of this, indulging his private passions, he chaired the Pakistan Flower Show for most of the 1950s. So what um, Thomas's collective activities point to, albeit via sort of one well-placed individual, are the efforts that were beginning from the later stages of the Second World War 
made by the government of India and also provincial governments to plan the post-war reconstruction of the region. Sindh, a newly created, it was only created in 1936, small and relatively marginal province, had been drawn squarely into the wartime crisis, both as an allied military centre, excuse me, um, and a source of foodstuffs exportable to other parts of British India as and when required. Once the war seemed to be ending, plans that had been put on hold with the outbreak of war quickly resurfaced. By March 45, the provincial authorities had decided that what was needed was conscious and planned development, with the government leading the way. But they recognised that the province would have to rely mainly on its own financial resources, rather than rely on problematic grants and subsidies from the centre to drive the province's draft master plan, whose first priorities were irrigation, including the projected um, construction of a lower Sindh barrage in the vicinity of Hyderabad and agriculture. The following year, these post-war development challenges were summed up in a report produced for the Sindh cabinet. In the finance secretary's view, the first stage in planning was to prepare individual schemes. The next would be to accommodate these within a programme with a clear sense, agreed sense of priorities and the limits of capacity. Either way, this course of action called for an immediate rise in taxation if taxation was um, on was not not acceptable on the scale that the um, finance um, authorities felt it should be, then the province would have to be content with fewer roads, dispensaries, farms, schools, and so on. By 1947, of course, the broader landscape, political landscape, was in the process of being radically reconfigured. With independence came partition, and obviously Sindh was included within the new state of Pakistan. So in this context, the fledgling Pakistani authorities at both provincial and federal level placed huge rhetorical emphasis on developing the new state. Technical or technological progress was to be the order of the day. As I said before, becoming modern was what needed to happen to Pakistan and Pakistanis. And for this to happen, in turn, there had to be development. So in a manner reminiscent of discussions in the years running up to 1947, the Pakistani state's close identification with and sponsorship of development programmes and projects was viewed as crucial to its wider public or popular legitimacy. On the other hand, the harsh reality was that newly created, the newly created state of Pakistan found it very difficult to meet its everyday needs and shortages of essential items and rationing were experienced by most Pakistanis in the year, years following independence. Pakistan was forced to go cap in hand to international organisations and austerity was the order of the day. Um, I think we should also note by the 1940s and certainly by 1947, um, perhaps a little bit confusingly, there also existed in Sindh a, a vocal Sindh-Hari committee, so something totally different to the Hari Committee of Inquiry. This Hari committee represented Hari interests and had been founded back in 1930 by, among others, GM Syed, later becoming Sindh's most high profile nationalist politician. By 1947, however, um, the leadership of the Sindh Hari committee lay with Hedabaksh Jatoy, whose photograph I do have, a former provincial civil servant who, towards the end of the Second World War, had resigned as a deputy collector in order to champion the rights of Sindh's landless peasantry. Moreover, there had been, we should just note, in, in the middle, in, during the war in 1943, a government-sponsored tenancy committee 
that had already produced some recommendations regarding tenancy rights. But due to the uncertainties associated with the war, no immediate follow-up action had been taken on this report. So in 1947, March 1947, so we're just winding back a touch before the creation of Pakistan itself, when Pakistan was still actually far from a done deal and under pressure from central league leaders, I mean Jinnah, it is said, considered the uplift of cultivators in the province to be, quote, the foremost necessity of the day. I mean, he was worried about what he called communistic influence um, and its um, chances of spreading fast over the rural population there. But anyway, under pressure from people like Jinnah, um, since then Premier appointed a five-man committee to inquire into tenancy arrangements. So we've got Thomas as chair, and then we have Siddiqui, a bureaucrat and a landlord, Kekar, a landlord from Larkana, Gopichand, who was a Hindu landlord or Hindu landowner, I should say, and then the most well-known of this um, group of five, Masood, Mohammed Masood, Masood rather, the last a serving district officer who was collector of Nawab Shah, had won a reputation already for his Hari uplift work, but who proved often unable to attend the committee meetings in Karachi, um, which one could, if one was feeling a bit sort of conspiratorial, think was what was partly planned from the start. Significantly, Masood was not well liked by many Sindhi politicians at the time, precisely because of his open support in the run up to independence for Hari rights. You know, he was described in the press locally as a pro-Pakistan ICS officer, um, kind of in a sense accused of encouraging Haris not to contribute produce towards the payment of debts contracted by their zamindars. And, you know, um, let's just move. This is a picture of Masood, who you probably have heard about already in relation to work that he did later in his life. But anyway, so here are some of the kinds of things which um, were um, said about him. Um, the Com Hari Committee of Inquiry, once established, operated in a fairly or pretty classic fashion, holding meetings over a period stretching from March 47 to early 48. Thomas led the proceedings, gathering information from both within Pakistan and abroad. And the other members, you know, apart from Masood, seemed to go along in the main with whatever he recommended, only occasionally disagreeing. But as the committee's minutes show, Masood proved a repeated thorn in Thomas's side from urging changes to the committee's initial terms of reference to challenging its working procedures. And their disagreement over the terms of reference, for instance, reveals the basic difference of opinion between the two men. Whereas Masood seemed to be hoping for, quote, radical reform that would restructure agrarian relationships in the countryside, Thomas interpreted the committee's remit to, find, to mean finding ways to develop the province's agrarian potential. What was important for him was not who owned the land, but how the land was formed or farmed, I should say. Progress on reaching a set of agreed recommendations proved slower than Thomas had originally anticipated. By October 1947, the committee's attempt to generate data by distributing a questionnaire had not, surprisingly, considering the disruptions caused by the wider partition related political developments of the previous six months produced only a very meagre response. So instead it was decided oral evidence would be collected from a select number of witnesses, most of whom were to be landlords or landholders or, or local politicians, and only a handful of Hari representatives were interviewed 
including Hedda Bakshi de Toy and um, his colleague Abdul Kader, who was the editor of um, the Hari Hadkar newspaper produced in Hyderabad. Now, the committee's majority report, which was presented to the Sindh government in July 1948, wasn't immune to the Hari's plight. It did draw attention to the huge inequalities present in the Sindhi countryside. It would have been hard for it not to have done so. By the late 40s, Hari's made up more than 50% of the province's total rural population. You know that not only did they pay half the produce of, of the land over to their zamindars, but you know, landlords typically deducted various levies, which inevitably reduced the Hari share of any profit. Um, so, you know, the report wasn't didn't pull, in a sense, any punches when it came to the, the challenges you know, of, that Hari's faced. But to sympathetic observers, um, it was surprising, having produced such a dismal picture of living conditions in rural Sindh, that the committee did not then recommend reforms or much more, I suppose, radical reform to raise incomes and living conditions there. Instead, it, it seemed almost that the report was suggesting that the problems of Haris were either of their own creation or perhaps natural problems or the result of government neglect, um, that the landlord was a friend of the Hari at heart and consequently land reforms were undesirable and would even re represent a, a kind of a loss of um, just a loss for, for the Hari. So this outcome was extremely disappointing to those who had expected more concrete reform and obviously to Hari activists. One response suggested that while the um, reports proposed tenancy uh, um, Sorry, one of the proposed tenancy legislation um, was touted as giving Cindy Harris an opportunity to stand on their own two legs. Quote, in order for them to stand erect, zamindars should get off their backs first. But from the perspectives of the supporters of the report, what was urgently needed in Cindy was not land reform, but improved, more modern, more developed tenancy arrangements, which would in turn support more develop that word again, agricultural production, and hence raise productivity. So all aspirations that were totally in line with the long held views of its primary author, Thomas. Now, Masood um, dissented with the majority opinion, as mentioned um, before, he, he stuck to his guns and refused to add his name to the report. Instead, he produced a note of dissent. This is something that had been originally allowed and he decided this is what he was going to do. And he presented it to the authorities in July 1948 also. But what he didn't expect was for his opinion to be then kept from the public. Um, it um, was um, held back and um, as these uh, quotes that I've got up on the screen um, at the moment suggest, um, you know, there, you know, it, it, it triggered sort of commentary um, at the time. I mean, the Pakistan Times, that still at that time a left-leaning publication, often critical of the authorities for failing to meet the expectations of Pakistan's common man, you know, noted that, um, uh, that um, what that the, the note of dissent was actually um, recommending complete nationalisation. Of, of, of land. Masood, um, who referred to the condition of the Haris as deplorable, 
and so forth was calling for the complete abolition of the zamindari system with minimum compensation. But importantly, I think we need to note, he also located his argument squarely in the context of the post-partition refugee challenges facing Pakistan, setting out you know, his case um, as follows. So saying, I believe we can take several lakhs of refugees, providing we overall overhaul our land tenure system. And he went on at some length along those lines. Indeed, in his desire to encourage um, the province's development, Masood you know, pitched his own, I suppose, argument in terms of him being fully in agreement with his committee colleagues. I mean, there was no doubt he was committed to precisely the mechanised agrarian development that Thomas was also strongly recommending. But as I've said, where he deviated from his committee colleagues was in relation to who owned the land. Um, obviously, um, he, I suppose, on this was the this this it was this kind of rhetoric that I've got on the screen in front of you, where he's describing in a way the lot of of the Cindy Hari, which really I suppose resonated with um, those who later on came to see the content of his report or of his dissenting note. Anyway. Um, Protests at the withholding of Massoud's note of dissent quickly mounted um, with um, younger Muslim League members um, putting pressure on the provincial party and on district league committees to pass resolutions demanding its publication. Students too agitated. Even the president of the All Pakistan Muslim League personally appealed to the Sindh governor, governor urging him to intervene so that the provincial government would yield to public demand. To add a further twist, a pamphlet signed by 16 ulama alleged that the note of dissent's contents were un-Islamic and that its writer had communist leanings. On the other hand, some commentators suggested that any justification of zamindari by the ulama would help to drive the masses away from religion. Anyway, to cut what is quite a long story short, um, with a new Sindh minister in post, who was less reliant on his predecessor for landed support, I'm talking about Yusuf Haroun. The Sindhi authorities finally published Masood's note in June 1949. Um, and, you know, this was when, you know, the kind of the rhetoric that I've just put on the screen obviously made quite an impact. Um, in the meantime, the Sindh authorities had already published a bill in March 1949 announcing legislation intended to regulate the rights and liabilities of tenants and landlords in the province. Um, let's move on. Um, so all the while, the Sindhari Committee, and this is um, its flag, we've got obviously a, a document on the right hand side. Um, this is later produced in 1952 when you know, Haris are petitioning for amendments to the Sindh Tenancy Act. Haris all the while under Hedda Bakshi's leadership were keeping up a sustained campaign to maintain public awareness of the Hari plight. Um, you know, issuing demands at periodic intervals that included calling for hereditary rights on land and the substitute of the kind of crop sharing system with cash rents. Um, included in the demands of the, um, or now being made by the Hari, Sindhari committee were also wider issues like education to be made universal, free and compulsory and new elections to be held on the basis of adult franchise. People in, 
you know, across Pakistan at this time were becoming very frustrated that their, you know, elections were not being held despite, you know, all the promise that had come with independence. Um, a convention, for example, organised by Hari leaders in Karachi in March 1949, you know, highlighted the lack, the absence of any Hari representative or representation rather in um, the existing legislative um, assembly. Um, at the end of that particular meeting, its president apparently flushed with excitement, declared that Haris were not prepared to give up the red flag. It was the flag of the oppressed. And as long as exploitation continued, so long would the red flag be the symbol of their struggle against oppression. Um, you know, in 1950, as the bill was being debated, more than 15,000 peasants from across the province gathered in Karachi. They conducted a sit-in outside the Sindh Legislative Assembly. And such was the disruption that assembly members weren't allowed to leave the building while the protest was going on. Despite the fanfare that greeted the legislation in some quarters, the act, as I keep, I suppose I signalled, you know, from the start, failed to make any real difference to Hari lives. By March 1951, the newly reappointed Sindh Chief Minister, M.A. Kuro, who was a large landholder himself, felt sufficiently confident to declare, much to the surprise of contemporaries, that, you know, a Hari problem did not exist in the province, only in some newspaper offices. And he suggested that thanks to recent irrigation developments, which had increased the amount of land to be farmed, it was actually poor zamindars who were vying with each other to secure the services of the Haris. So that then triggered, obviously, press comments along the lines of what Mr. Kuro did not say was that he was determined to make his, quote, poor zamindars richer and the rich Hari poorer. So this period of the early 50s sees, you know, um, public meetings, pressure being put on, I suppose, the authorities in different ways by Haris and their representatives. Um, again, in a meeting in 1950, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the message that came from that meeting was that nothing short of the immediate dissolution of the assembly and new elections on the basis of universal franchise would satisfy the peasants. And as Hedda Bakshi-Jatoy pointed out, in spite of 15 years of service of the Hari Committee for the cause of Haris, they're still at the mercy of zamindars, they have no proprietary interest in the land, and the Tenancy Act passed last year has still not been enforced until now. And I could go on, and I probably shouldn't go on too long about this, but there are, you know, interesting sort of grass, grassroots sort of activities, activism, you know, being demonstrated through this time. I mean, we think, you know, know we appreciate that the early 50s were, you know, a pivotal time for Pakistan in terms of its political development. But I think it's important to, to factor in what's going on at grassroots level in somewhere like Sindh, which has tended not to be sort of brought into this, this bigger picture. Um, what made the matter especially urgent in the early 50s was also the worsening food situation in parts of Sindh, let alone the rest of the country. Um, you know, at a conference held in Umakot in July 1952, reportedly attended by about 20,000 people and presided over by Fares Ahmed Fares, who was then Secretary of the All Pakistan Confederation of Labour, the Sindhari Federation, as it called itself then, issued another call for the abolition of zamindari. Um, 
Zamindari needed to be abolished without compensation. It called for an, a land allotted to toilers of the soil on an equitable basis. I think there's one last point that I just want to make because I, I appreciate there's got to be some time for questions and, and time has passed very, very quickly. I think the there's an elephant in the room of all of this, and this is really where refugee um, agriculturalists fitted into the, the picture. Um, in a sense, they were the elephant in the room. The messy politics following partition certainly complicated the realities and options involved on the ground in somewhere like Sindh, because refugee cultivators, it's very clear, often ended up in competition with so-called locals when it came to the allocation of agricultural land during this period, whether that was land left behind by migrating Hindus or made available by development, say, in, in irrigation. Um, so, you know, this the, the, this idea that there was somehow, first of all, a labour problem in in the province. I think yes, I have a quote from a a newspaper article from 1952. You know, this idea that there was a labour problem that could in way be resolved by um, integrating um, more let's call them refugee agriculturalists into its kind of agricultural landscape was a, a sort of subtext to a great deal of what we see being discussed. Um, as that last couple of lines on this quote say, with such a measure, in other words, um, adopted, this government will not necessarily be a loser, quote, it will have doubled its land under the cultivation, giving a fillip to the Grow More scheme and revenue would increase. But by the mid 1950s, if we look at a report that was compiled by US officials, you know, there had been evidently very, very little progress made as far as addressing the Hari predicament. Haris had to apply for their rights due to unawareness of the law or fear of the landlord. Not even 5%, it seemed, had gained them since the passage of the Act. Loopholes, it seemed, again, according to this report, permitted the landholder to follow the letter, if not the spirit of the law which in the case of Sindh was emasculated, as it put it, by evasive language. And so this particular report concluded that the passage of the legislation there, rather than strengthening um, tenant rights, had led to the widespread eviction of tenants. So really, I think um, this is probably where I would just like to end, um, making just one final comment, um, which in a way involves me returning perhaps to the points I made at the beginning of my paper, I think it's worth reiterating that rural poverty in Sindh remains pervasive. You know, again, with some stats just to back this up, some 19% of urban Sindhis are classed as poor, but over twice as many rural Sindhis fall into this category. Within, Sindh, within Pakistan, again, Sindh has the widest rural urban gap and the largest disparity in quotes, human development. Though the province may contain amongst the highest per capita Pakistani incomes, in part the effect of being home to the mega port city of Karachi alongside its, you know, extremely wealthy land owners. Um, with around one million Hari families cultivating land under sharecropping arrangements, its human development indicators in rural areas remain the worst in the country. Technological developments aside, as symbolised by the increased number of tractors now used in the Sindhi countryside, deep structural inequalities remain at the heart of life in this part of Pakistan. And I think, you know, we can definitely see um, 
enormous, I suppose, continuities, even if some of the, um, you know, some of the things, some things have changed, but the continuity is evident and very evident to see. So, um, and I think I should stop here because my clock is telling me that we're at about 20 to 3 and I know there may be questions that you'd like me to address. So thank you. Um, thank you so much for that, Sarah. And um, let me just start out by saying, and uh, while if there are any questions from the audience, please do start sending them in. We have already had one or two questions. Um, perhaps I just want to start by saying that I like the fact that you used the evidence of the years immediately following independence and you, were, you ended by connecting that to the present moment. And it's slightly comical that just yesterday, uh, the former Maharashtra Chief Minister of India, Devendra uh, Fadnavis, said that, you know, they, the party wants to one day take over Sindh and the, the city of Karachi in particular. So I think the oh, time of your paper in some ways could not have been more interesting. Um, we have a question from Saeed Vakar, um, who is perhaps sort of taking forward the point um, from the title of your paper. And he says that yeah. the translation of Jeko Kere Sokhai, he says that perhaps the to, to interpret it as has the right to eat is perhaps a bit too strong. And okay. perhaps what it can be translated as is um, can eat rather than has the right to eat. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit more on that and how you Gosh. interpret that as in the language of rights. OK, well, I, I certainly would you know, defer to someone who who will you know, have a much stronger grasp of language than me. I suppose it's um, that idea of you can eat who who he who tills. He sorry, I'm not being clear. Um, he who tills ha can eat. Um, I, I chose that sort of um, that that saying really to as a, as a title for this um, paper because I felt that it kind of captured a connection between the you know the Hari as the, as as the producer on the one hand and and the Hari as um, somebody entitled to um, a particular sort of set of rights almost that came or were associated are associated with with the 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 tasks that they carry out so um i can't really sorry i'm i'm being i'm stumbling because i, I i'm not quite sure what else to say apart from that i would be it would be great to hear what actually saeed himself um thought on this matter right but probably um, the system doesn't allow it so don't worry okay say that there is a follow-up question you can add to okay. that but um, but Sarah, if I could sort of ask you in terms of your also your book that you quoted last year with William Gold. Yes. Perhaps we can bring that in, into the conversation where you very much develop how citizens in this period were were using a language of rights and were making citizenship claims. And do you perhaps see this fitting in that broader theoretical narrative that you put forward in that book? Or do you see this as something different to the argument you were presenting there? I know I do. You're right. I see this as being part and parcel of that same argument, because I think that what I would see or how, what, how I would see, I suppose, Hari's in Sindh as being perhaps one example of, um, if not exactly hidden citizens, but citizens certainly pushed to the margins when it came to being in a position to, you know, take benefit from and um, enjoy, you know, the 
the new sets of rights in inverted commas that came to be associated with the creating of a new state. So I think that I would certainly, yes, definitely link um, the, the struggles of, of Haris in somewhere like Sindh to the bigger picture of, you know, marginalised groups of citizens who were not able to enjoy the full fruits of citizenship post-independence. So this idea in a way of, of differentiated citizenship coming into play with um, different groups of citizens having a differential access to um, the, the sort of the being to being a citizen. So yes, so it's part and parcel for me of the same, the same sort of, if you want to call it theoretical approach. Right. Thank you, Sayed, for your question. Um, I'm afraid we are out of time, so we might have to um, leave it there. Um, this also brings to a close the Modern South Asian Seminar Series for the term of Michaelmas. We have a wonderful line of, uh, of speakers next term, and I hope that many of you will join us next term. Uh, but until then, please join me in thanking Professor Sarah Ansari for that wonderful paper. Uh, and I look forward to seeing a whole lot of you next term uh, as well. Thank you, Anu. Shall I, shall I leave this now and then come back?